evening, everyone. <laughs> well, it's lovely to be here with you tonight. Um, here at the evening service, as Gerald just said, we've been going through um, what, what are come to be called the Beatitudes uh, in um, Matthew, and they're from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. They're called the Beatitudes. Um, you may have already heard this, but I'm just worth refreshing. Uh, they're called the Beatitudes because the first word of each phrase is blessed, which uh, in Latin is beati. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. I only took Latin fourth grade for half for one third of a year. Um, but beati, and so hence they're called the Beatitudes. Um, and sometimes I think uh, it can be easy to get hung up on a word like blessed in this passage, or its churchy equivalent blessed, uh, and think of it simply as an action of blessing. So in other words, you do this thing, and that thing will be your reward or your blessing. But the Greek word that we translate as blessing in this passage actually has a different meaning. Blessed here means not a wish of a promise or a reward, but rather a state of being, a state of happiness. Tonight we're really going to look at verse 7, which says, Blessed, or blessed, are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. What I don't want you to come away with is the idea that you had better try really hard this week uh, to be more merciful so that you can receive mercy yourself. What's much closer to the truth of this passage is if you were to come away basking in God's mercy and out of that richness, out of that state of being, you overflowed with more and more mercy to others. But before we get there, it's worth just stepping back a bit and asking, what exactly is mercy anyway? There's that old phrase that says something along the lines that, um, of, to help people remember. It says, um, grace is getting what we don't deserve, and mercy is not getting what we do deserve. But actually, I think mercy is much, much bigger, much deeper, much better than simply being spared a punishment. In the Old Testament, there are these two words that are commonly translated as mercy or hold the concept of mercy. Um, again, my pronunciations are not going to be right, but the, the first is hesed, which may ring some bells for you if you've heard sermons on like Ruth and Boaz or other places where God's talking about his relationship with Israel. And hesed is certainly much bigger than escaping punishment. As with all these big concept words, it's hard to translate them directly into our own language, but hesed is most often used to describe God's unrelenting love and commitment to his people and his concrete actions to restore their relationship with him. Though it can be used between humans like Ruth and Boaz, or it's used also with David and Jonathan, it's normally found describing God's covenant with the people of Israel. It's, of course, found when a covenant is made or renewed, but it's also found again and again when the people of Israel have rejected God or defied him or behaved in a way that lets down their end of the covenant. And in those places, God continues to have mercy time after time. 
One commentator says that hesed is the steady, persistent refusal of God to wash his hands of a people who show every inclination to leave him, forget him, and reject him. In other words, mercy means a commitment to action that will go to any length to bring us home. But there's another word in the Old Testament that can be translated in mercy, and I'm going to butcher this one even worse, but it's, um, and that is ra'amim. It has a similar meaning, a similar root to the word um, that means womb. And it so, so it holds the sense of feeling, the feeling of those born from the same womb, or the feeling of the mother, a mother who is given birth. Mercy, then, is not just the promise that God's made. It's not just the outworking of his faithfulness, like some Jane Austen dutiful and gentlemanlike benefactor who makes good on his commitments, as, as admirable and good as that is. My mom was really big on honoring commitments, and um, it's actually held me in really good stead as a model of faithfulness and integrity in my life. But it also meant that if I ever mentioned or if I ever started anything, it meant that I had to be in it for the long haul. When I was 11, through an unfortunate and miscalculated attempt of playing the system, instead of learning to play either the clarinet or the saxophone, which I was very keen on, in sixth grade band, I found myself instead playing the trombone. I hope I'm not offending any committed trombone players here, but it just really wasn't my thing. I showed up to every rehearsal, I played every concert, I even went to band camp. I made good on my commitment, and I even worked hard enough to do reasonably well at it, but my heart was never in it. It may have been a bit of hesed, but it wasn't ra'amim. In the New Testament, this sense of the feeling of mercy is emphasized even more. Luke describes God's mercy literally as the feeling he has in his bowels for us. I love that. Okay, so conceptually, it probably translates better for us as the feeling he has in his heart or his, his gut. But I love that impact of the feeling he has in his bowels for us. What it speaks to me of is the fierceness, the strength, the gut-wrenching depth of a parent's desire for their child's well-being. It's not just something you think, it's something you feel with your whole being. And in moments of danger or pain or need or sadness, it's the, it's the feeling that makes parents go to extraordinary and often unrealized and unrequited depths and lengths. For me, the most powerful image of mercy in, um, in all that depth and complexity is the parable of the prodigal son. There's so much in that parable, and we could spend a whole series just looking at it, so there's not really time to do it justice tonight. But one of the things that has always got me about that story is when the father runs out to meet the wayward son. A lot has been made about the indignity and the loss of face and social standing that the father would have faced in order to hike up his robes and run towards the son. 
And that in itself is a powerful picture of what the Father is willing to do to be reconciled to us. But what always gets me is that the, is that the Father, is that when the Father runs out, he makes that sacrifice before he knows anything about why the Son has come home. For all he knows, the son could simply have been coming back to ask for more money. Which we do sometimes, right? So many people think that that story hinges on the son's decision to come home. When It says when he comes to himself. But I think the story hinges on when, on when the father runs out. Embraces his dirty, smelly, unclean in every sense of the word son before he knows anything about his motivations, his intentions, or his repentance. He runs out because from his very bowels, his mother-like, brother-like, fearsome love only wants to have that boy in his arms. He runs out because his son has been lost and now he is found. One of the things that I found most illuminating about becoming a mother is being able to look back at some of the things that my own parents did through the lens of being a parent myself. When I was young, there were some really difficult decisions or family circumstances that my own parents navigated which at the time seemed to me to have very little to do with my own comfort or needs or distress or desires rather it's not that they it's not that i didn't think they loved me quite the opposite it just seemed that i was a very small cog in a, or a very small piece rather in a very complex puzzle but now when i look back It sometimes takes my breath away at how painful those times must have been for them. Not only were they dealing with those difficult situations themselves, but they had the heartache and pain, the feeling in their very bowels of their children's upheaval and distress. I look back on the decisions they took, on the allowances they made, of the sacrifices they made, and I see Hesed. And I see Ra Amin. And it is Jesus' feelings that lead to his direct action in many of the gospel stories. When people came to be healed, when they asked for his mercy, over and over again, the gospel writers say that Jesus had compassion on them, that he felt in his very bowels for them. And then He acted. He healed, he taught, he fed, he raised from the dead. And he asks us to do the same things. When one expert in the law asks Jesus who his neighbor was, Jesus tells the story that we have come to know as the Good Samaritan. At the end, he asks the expert, who was the neighbor to the man who, held, who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert's reply is, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus doesn't say, 
Good answer. Or, well done, you were listening. He says, go and do likewise. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. This beatitude, though, like so many others, is a bit circular. In order for us to show the kind of mercy that Jesus is talking about, we need to experience God's immense forgiveness, grace, and love ourselves. To live in a way that is selfless and outward and undefensive and free, we need to be people who are completely and utterly convinced of who we are and what we are worth. We need to live in the knowledge of God's mercy. Sometimes it feels like every message in this world is one that tells us we're not good enough, that we need to prove ourselves, that there's always something else we have to do, buy, change, or strive after to show that we are valuable, that we have meaning and purpose, that we are worthy of love, that we belong. Sometimes it feels like every message we tell ourselves is that we are not good enough, that we need to prove ourselves and our worth, that there's always something else we have to do, buy, change, or strive after to prove to ourselves that we are valuable, that we have meaning and purpose, that we are worthy of love, that we belong. Self-help books will tell you that the remedy is positive self-talk, that you just need to ignore those messages, that you can pull yourself upward and onward. I really love the animated film Inside Out. If you haven't seen it, you should, because it's amazing. It's the story of an 11-year-old girl named Riley who moves house across the country, but it's told from the perspective of her different emotions. Joy, the glowing, effervescent, eternally positive emotion, has up until now pretty much run the show. But as Riley struggles with the changes and adjustments of her new life, sadness, anger, fear, and other emotions begin to take more control. Through many adventures and mishaps, Joy continues to pep-talk all the other emotions. This is easy! This is fun! We can do it! But in the end, she can't. And you know what? In the end, we can't either. We can't just will ourselves into leading happy, peaceful, fulfilled merciful lives we can't talk ourselves into belonging we can't talk ourselves into feeling worthy of love and when we can't when the facade falls and we begin to feel our disconnection our shame our sadness we begin to cope by numbing ourselves with substances or social media by distracting ourselves with activities and entertainment We're shielding ourselves by going on the attack. We cope with life instead of living life to the full. And my friends, we were never meant to just cope. Our belonging, our deep and abiding and defining knowledge of our worthiness to be loved can only come from God's mercy, can only come from the cross. At the cross, 
is at the cross that we see mercy itself, mercy embodied, mercy at its height, at its perfection. The cross is where the master sees our crippling, oppressive debt and marks the book as paid. The cross is where the father who has been long watching for us runs out and embraces us at great personal cost. The cross is where the shepherd gathers, gathers us up heavily, painfully, exhaustingly and carries us home. Happy, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. At the cross, mercy himself opened his arms of love wide, wide enough for the whole world. At the cross, mercy himself said that you are enough. Not because of what you do, not because of how spiritual you are, not because of how beautiful or successful or popular you are, but simply because you are his child. At the cross, mercy himself said, shouted, that you are loved, you are worthy, you are precious. It's no wonder that those who experience God's mercy are blessed, are happy, are merciful themselves. If you could live in the fullest knowledge of God's immense and immeasurable love for you, of the lengths he went to show you extravagant and costly grace, of the feeling that he has for you in his very bowels, then how could you not live out that mercy yourself? I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to move straight into communion because in communion, Jesus invites you, you invites us to experience his mercy, to literally take the act of mercy found at the cross physically into our bodies, to let it physically become part of our being and existence. And as you sip, gulp, chew, swallow, Ask God to give you even just a small glimpse tonight of the length, the depth, the height, and the breadth of his love for you. Of the distances he's gone and will go for you. Of the fierce, overwhelming, all-consuming feeling in the very depths of his bowels that he has for you. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy.